Well, uh, good evening. My name is Joe Wolf. I'm the Dean of Arts and Humanities here at UCL. And uh, it's my job this evening just to kick things off, to welcome you all to uh, our inaugural lecture this evening, one in a series of inaugural lectures in the Faculties of Arts and Humanities and Social and Historical Sciences. And it's also an event in our Festival of the Arts, and you will have seen the brochure outside. Not all events are sold out, many are, but there are still tickets available and uh, other activities over the next two days, three days. So uh, this evening, as you can see behind me, we're here for Melissa Terrace's inaugural lecture, A Decade in Digital Humanities. And I'll just run through the uh, order of events for this evening. So first of all, Rob Miller, the head of Department of Information Studies, will introduce Melissa and introduce her talk. Uh, then Melissa will uh, lecture to us on a decade in digital humanities. And that will be followed by a vote of thanks from Professor Andrew Prescott, who's joined us this evening from our friendly rivals, King's College, down the road. Uh, after that... <laughs> oh, come on. Uh, don't hiss yet. You have, you, um, uh, after that, uh, we'd like to welcome you all to a reception, which tonight will be in the Wilkins North Cloisters, roughly speaking, three or four floors below where we are now. But there'll be plenty of people to lead you there if you don't know where it is. So uh, without further ado, I'll hand over to Rob for the introduction. So Melissa just explained to me why it's called a decade in digital humanities, because she joined uh, the department in 2003, 10 years ago. So. Uh, that's what, at least one explanation for that. Um, so I'm just going to say, uh, Melissa, you probably don't remember this, but I, I'll tell you right from the start, as soon as you joined the department, you were just um, you were bursting with ideas for research. You've always been like that. Uh, and I'll just remind you, you know, it, in the early days, I was... Um, so in 2003, I was in charge of the undergraduate degree uh, that the department used to run. And one of the sort of unpleasant things I used to have to do each year was to trawl around the department looking for people who would, uh, who would supervise undergraduate dissertations. And most people would kind of look the other way and try and kind of run away from me when they saw me coming down the corridor. Not so Melissa. She's always uh, full of ideas for that. There'll always be six or seven topics that she'd suggest for, for undergraduates. Remember these, these days? And that was kind of just an indication of how she has always been, just full of ideas. Um, uh, for things to do and since then she's gone on to much greater things of course she's um, you know along with uh, with Claire Warwick she's been a prime mover for UCLDH um, and uh, she's just gone from from strength to strength it's just amazing the the, the, the amount of stuff that she does um, I'm just going to finish with an anecdote actually uh, uh, I could tell a story about a recent request that Melissa made to me so um, we've just um, We've just employed another Scottish Mel in the department. So we, we have two Scottish Mel's now. And um, so there was a little bit of an email exchange, a joke exchange about this. And, uh, and Melissa here suggested that we were now quora for a, a departmental version of the, of the Spice Girls, right, <laughs> two, two Mel's. Um, and uh, so a little bit more of an exchange. I think I threatened a, a compulsory song at the, at the dis. Um, a Christmas party or something like that. Um, but Melissa, following on from this, she requested 
if she could please be Scary Spice. So she wanted to be Scary Spice. And I think, uh, in the nicest possible way, uh, that is most appropriate because <laughs> Melissa, it is uh, almost scary the way you are just so full of energy and ideas uh, about your research. And I'm sure we'll hear that um, now when you talk about a decade in digital humanities. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Joe. And lovely to see so many known faces here tonight. Thank you. I've called my talk a decade in digital humanities for three reasons. Number one, <laughs> the term digital humanities started in 2004, really, with the publication of this book, A Companion to Digital Humanities. With this text upspread through all of everyone teaching the use of computing in the arts and humanities, the term stuck. And since 2004, we've all called ourselves digital humanists. So I thought since the term was 10 years old, it'd be useful to look at the growth of the discipline and to see how it has spread and how it has grown at UCL. Reason number two. <laughs> I've been at UCL for 10 years. This is my, the end of my first decade in digital humanities and academic job. This is the web page that was up the week I joined UCL. You will see we have a new provost then, some things never change. Uh, so I thought this was a good point for me to pause. I'm not one for looking back, but it's a good point for me to pause and look back over the last 10 years and see what we have achieved in digital humanities at UCL. And you'll notice I'm always saying we rather than I. Reason number three. I will come back to reason number three towards the end of my lecture. Right, so, digital humanities. You're all here tonight for a lecture on digital humanities. I want to see a show of hands. Who here could define what digital humanities means? Come on, don't be shy. About four people, <laughs> neither of which were my dean or my head of department. Okay, we'll have a chat later. It's a very woolly term and it's difficult to tell what it is. So this, in this week, which is the UCL Festival of the Arts and Humanities, let's go right back to basics. What are the humanities? The humanities are academic disciplines. Okay, we've got that. They're academic disciplines. They seek to understand and interpret the human experience from individuals to entire cultures, engaging in the discovery, preservation and communication of the past and present records. And we do all this to enable a deeper understanding of contemporary society. This definition is taken from our award-winning infographic, The Humanities Matter, and it shows really the breadth of the field where things like literature, classics, ancient and modern languages. But it makes sense then that the digital humanities must be the use of computing in all these different academic disciplines to help us understand the human experience, either now or in the past, and to help us understand human society, either now or in the past. You all got that? It's incredibly woolly and it's a very difficult term that we've been using to describe a whole range of activities. It might help then for me just to talk about some of the projects that I have done here at UCL over the past 10 years. So the easiest thing we can do with computers is count things. Anything you do on a computer has to be put into numerical form for it to work. And one of the things we humanists like to do is count words. So here I have taken a million words of conference abstracts from my field, from the ALCACH conference, and I have counted them. And I have shown across time how the mention of one technology, XML, increases, while the mention of another technology, SGML, falls. That kind of visualization of text can show us trends across a discipline. This is a very, very basic example. But making more and more complex analysis of text is very much a core part of digital humanities. So when we do something like bring us up to date on making an iPhone app, which allows you to visualize text on social media, it's part of a tradition of manipulating text with a computer. 
But as it stands, I don't actually do much work with text now. I do a lot of work on image processing. So I started off working on image processing of ancient documents and trying to read damage and deteriorated ancient texts. And more recently, we've been working at best practice principles for multispectral imaging. We've been destroying text so we can see if we can read them again later, looking at the best practice ways to use computers to try and read damaged and deteriorated documents. We've also been looking at burnt texts, texts which are buckled and burnt after being in a fire, and trying to visualise them so we can then straighten them out and actually read the text more. This takes us into the realm of 3D scanning, which means if you're going to scan one thing, why not scan a whole museum? This is a science museum in London, we scanned the whole shipping gallery. So the question is, we can use all this different type of technology, all this different type of uh, techniques to look at stuff in the humanities, and we can then look at the use of them in the humanities. And this is the important thing. We're not only just developing for development's sake, we're looking at the use and usefulness of these technologies, both for us, both for other researchers, and both across society. So we're sometimes looking at this as an example from the British Museum, where we studied how people use the British Museum catalogue for academic search. And sometimes we build things, we then test them, and then we roll them out, and we look to see how they're used. So a project like Transcribe Bentham, where we digitized the handwriting of Jeremy Bentham, or his manuscripts in UCL Special Collections, we put them online, we asked for volunteers to help us to transcribe them. And we test to see if that's a working model in the arts, humanities, and culture and heritage. So we've built something, we've tested it, we've rolled it out. Same with the curator system. We wanted to see how people were engaging with culture and heritage in museums. We put a system into the Grant Museum of Zoology to look at how people could interact with difficult questions and ethical questions about zoology questions using social media. So, Digital Humanities covers a whole range of technologies, covers a whole range of subjects. And you'll see there that I don't have a core academic subject like history or classics, and I also don't have a core technology that I work with. I work with a broad range of different technologies and different projects, but that is part of the wonder of working in this field. But let's go back to the question of digital humanities being created in 2004. What made it evolve, Athena-like, from the head of Zeus in 2004? Was it because that was the first time anyone had done quantifiable humanities or using quantifiable techniques within humanities scholarship? Well, of course, that is rubbish. You look back to the history of the humanities and the history of the book. If you think of the book as a technology, as soon as it was published, people were under the hood to see how it worked. And they did things like build concordances. This is a concordance of the New Testament, so they're trying to find how many times and where they say the word abomination. And they do that by rearranging the Bible and printing these books. This is 1579, and this is the earliest example in UCL special collections. Another example, Joseph Scaliger proved that the ancient Egyptians must have been alive before the events in the Old Testament, which got him into a huge heap of trouble. But he published this book in 1610 using quantifiable methods in the humanities. And another example from linguistics, August Schleicher, he looked at uh, um, all the languages across Europe and he showed that there must be a common route to them using quantifiable methods. Now, all three of these texts are in UCL Library. All three of them, you don't have to go to UCL Library to see them because, yay, digitization. You can sit at home and look at them. And digitization is changing humanities scholarship because of the range of things you can see. But the point I'm making here is using quantifiable methods, counting things and manipulating data has a huge history and is old as the humanities themselves as a method for use of the humanities. So when I do something like look at census records, well, the first project I worked on here at UCL, and we look, we use the census records from Ancestry, we use UCL's high performance computing facilities to see if we could do some analysis that was useful, that is part of a trajectory of using quantifiable methods in the humanities that goes back 500 years 
we can just count things a bit faster. So what made digital humanities rise in 2004? Was it because that was the first time computing had been used in the humanities? Well, of course, that's rubbish too. If you go back to the history of computing, and the first computers, they weren't even digital computers, the first computer programmer, Ada Lovelace, in her notes on the differential engine, she talks about computers being an extension of human power. She talks about art, she talks about the potential for music. She understood that we could use this engine to do something that wasn't just science and maths, and they called her a madwoman for it. Well. This madwoman has a theory that if you look at any of the digital computers, the first 100 digital computers in the world in the 1950s, 1960s and 1970s, you will find a humanities scholar looking at it and going, I could use that in my research. Certainly too in 1959 with uh, Father Busa over in Milan with IBM and he made an index of the work of, of, uh, of Thomas Aquinas, I'm totally forgetting the first father of my people, Thomas Aquinas used an index of counting words, building up that index by doing it with a computer back in 1959. But it, and he also employed a lot of women to do that too and, and Julianne Nyan and I have a really interesting project now interviewing a lot of these women and understanding the history and the trajectory of her field and how it came about. But it's also true up in Cambridge. Roy Wisby founded the Literary and Linguistic Computing Centre in 1960 in Cambridge when their first computers arrived. And it's true at UCL when the computers arrived at UCL in the 1970s, the artists were over there like a shot to set up the experimental and computing department and to look at how you could use computing to generate new artworks. At UCL we have this person. Anyone recognise who this is? Susan Hockey. So Susan Hockey was a major person who's, who started uh, looking at the use of text and how you could put text on a onto a computer, how you could encode it, how you could uh, manipulate it and do interesting things with it. She was my first boss here at UCL. She was the head of department of the library school at UCL when I joined in 2003. So the fact that in a library school we have someone looking at the use of technology in the humanities shows that it's embedded into a slightly different tradition as well. And Susan is, was an amazing person to follow, an amazing person to look up to. So when I do something then, like Textile, we make an iPhone app which allows us to count stuff and allows us to use computing to do something slightly different. We're looking at the uh, more modern form of computing. I'm looking at an iPhone and I'm going, how can I use this to do something for the humanities? And we build this iPhone app. It's a history of a trajectory of the last 50, 60 years, people looking at computing and going, how can I use that to do something in the humanities? It didn't just start in 2004, it goes back a long way. So what made DH rise in 2004? The first is its uh, academic response to societal change. In 2004, it's the end of a, a quite a drastic change in the information society. So we have the, the speed of computer goes up. And by the way, when I've got this boat on the graphs, that's, ha that's a, to mark 2004. So the speed of computing has gone up drastically. The price of computing has fallen drastically. The use of the internet, well, firstly, the internet has grown, and then it has been used more drastically. Now, I would say that if there was not an academic response to that from the humanities, we would be doing something wrong. It is the job of the humanities to look at the past and present record of human society and think about what it means to be human. So if we were not responding to the changes in computing at the society and having some type of humanities response to that, what would we be doing? So I see that digital humanities is an inevitable field. It might not have been called digital humanities, but it's an inevitable response to the changes in society to do with computing and information. 
The second reason, of course, is that it is a rebranding. Prior to 2004, there were many names for what people now call digital humanities. Humanities computing, computing in humanities, humanities advanced technology, humanities informatics. And then this term came along, which was like, yay, roll up, roll up, big tent digital humanities. We finally have a word which is catchy, a bit modern, we can all use. And it's amorphous enough, it doesn't make sense enough that we can all say we do it because it doesn't really make sense, it doesn't really matter. Now, I think that as well as uh, being big tent digital humanities, we might as well call it big wave digital humanities because when suddenly in 2004, when that term was adopted, it went through academia and suddenly everybody's a digital humanist. So this is Google Books and you can see suddenly towards 2004, there's a massive spike where digital humanities suddenly becomes more popular and now later on, digital humanities with a capital letter, with a capital D and a capital H is more important. It is a thing, it is a proper noun. By the way, this engram viewer that's just counting words on a document, remember we counted words in these abstracts? So this is just a fancy damn version of what I could do on my own computer. They only have more books than anyone else, okay? And this is a technique we've been using for 50, 60 years in the humanities using in computers, just simply counting words. But what Google can provide us with is a snapshot of how DH, the word, the phrase DH, has been used in the media. So we can see through Google Trends that it has been, it has hit the headlines. Towards 2011, 2012, we started to get headlines in places like the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Sunday Times, all the times, all the times we're talking about digital humanities. It is a thing now, it is a movement, it is a discipline. And the discipline starts to get itself, starts to get its act together. Many, many books appear with digital humanities in the title. I am responsible for some of them. Journals appear. Uh, digital Humanities Quarterly was launched six years ago now. I am one of the general editors of that. The conference ALLC ACH changes its name to Digital Humanities. For my sins, I am conference chair of this conference in Switzerland this year. And it's the biggest ever conference we've had in DH. This year, there were over 800 submissions to Comfto from over 2,500 different authors all saying that they are academics working in digital humanities. There's more and more chances to present in digital humanities worldwide and more conferences all over the world. In 2010, I put together this infographic quantifying digital humanities to try and show how it had spread and how the, the growth of the discipline had spread. And at the time in 2010, there were 114 centres in 24 countries. Now, just four years later, there are 195 digital humanities centres in 27 different countries worldwide. And anyone who's trying to set up a centre within a university or a library knows how long it takes. So the, the fact that they have the institutional support to do this, this is a phenomenal growth of departments and centres in this field. Now, UCLDH is part of that movement. We were born four years ago this week in this very lecture theatre. I'm going to high-five my ghost as she walks past. There I go. Um, bless me, I'm trying so hard to hide the fact I'm three, three months pregnant with twins and failing in that picture. Um, we don't talk about the Lord's Watch. A, I was sick as a dog, but B, there's a clue in the, towards the edge there of why we don't talk about it. It's not often that I do something at work which sees us mentioned in the political pages or mentioned in a court of law, but I'll leave you to Google that later because yay, digitisation, the internet never forgets. But moving on, so since 2004, in the last four years, in, the Centre for Digital Humanities here at UCL has accomplished a phenomenal amount of projects. This is not just my work, but the work of everyone in the centre. We've put in millions of pounds worth of research funding. We've been in headlines in major newspapers and, and major news outlets all over the world. We've won four or five major international academic prizes and prizes in libraries as well. We've published about 10 books between us. 
And you have to ask yourself, what of that would be attractive to a university that doesn't have a digital humanities centre? Can you see why people are actively trying to set up DH centres throughout the world? You might have to explain why to me later. So there's been a huge change, there's been a huge surge, there's been a huge change in what people are working on and what their focus is. What does this mean for the humanities? How many people in the humanities would describe themselves as digital humanists? Well, in 2005, there was a survey done at the University of Virginia, which suggested that 6% of humanist scholars self-proclaimed uh, that they were digital humanists. In 2012, Catherine Hales published a chapter which suggested that it was now 10% of humanity scholars were digital humanists. But in the next few weeks, there's going to be a report published by Ithaca SNR. They went into four different universities in the States and interviewed all the humanities scholars. And 50% of the humanities scholars in major universities said that they were digital humanists. 50%. So let's do a little show of hands here today. Who here works in the humanities? Who here would, would say that you're a digital humanist? About 75% of you, but you know, this is a lecture on digital humanities. <laughs> there might be bias in that reporting, and that's okay, but here's a different question. Who here works in the humanities? Who here never touches a computer in the, their work? There you go, we're all digital humanists, woohoo, we, we all win. And this is the problem with digital humanities. It's very hard to say where digital technologies stop. So I'm going to show you a little uh, curve now, which is commonly used in marketing and technology, which tries to understand how technology spreads through society. This is Rogers Innovation Adoption Curve, which has been around since 1962, so before the internet, before digitization or anything like that existed. But it's still a very powerful model today to understand the spread of technology and how things changed. Right at the start of the curve, you have the innovators, the people who are queuing up outside the Apple store to try and get the next thing. They really want the next bit of kit, or they want to develop new bits of software for that next bit of kit. Then you have the early adopters, the people that the innovators persuade, oh, you should try this, this is really good, you should try that. Only when they have enough swell does it cross what we call the chasm and hit the majority of people. It's then that technologies gets adopted throughout society, first with an early majority, then a late majority, and then eventually you hit the people that don't like technology at all, the laggards. If you think about something like mobile phone technology, my granny, who's now 87, got her first mobile phone. She doesn't like it very much, but she first got her first mobile phone this year. So we can see how a technology starts. You know, 20 years ago, if you had a mobile phone, you were here, and now it's gone through, and now even the laggards have. The interesting thing about this is we can think about the technologies that we use as humanists all the time. So if you go right over to the end of the, the scale, we can think about things like email, word processing, Googling something, looking at Google Books, you know, that stuff that every single person does as a scholar, whether they're in the humanities or not. You can then think about accessing digitised stuff. That's either the laggards or late majority can do that, looking up digitised items of what they want to see in library collections. But when you get to slightly more complex technology, counting words, there are tools available that the early majority can do, but if you want to build your own engine to do that kind of thing yourself, you need to be an innovator or an early adopter. You need to be at this part of the curve and you need to know enough about technologies to actually do it. And I'm going to argue that most of the stuff that I do in digital humanities sits firmly within this bit before technologies have crossed the chasm. 
Now, I'm going to say a little bit here, and this is, if you are in digital humanities, this is the one contentious thing in my lecture about digital humanities itself. One of the problems, I think, with digital humanities is, is we have latched on to a technology called XML, which, which is brilliant for us, but that technology never crossed the chasm. We were early adopters and innovators of that technology, but it hasn't really spread throughout society. And that technology is now 16 years old. Every single digital humanities course teaches XML. It's like, oh, this is what you do. This is the thing. This is the how you learn to program. But technology keeps changing. We have to be careful in digital humanities that we are not left behind by, by hitching our wagon to one specific technology and getting it stuck here. That's the thing that will make the internet explode when people start talking about it on Twitter. No, the people at XML won't like me for saying that. But never mind, this is my inaugural lecture. I'm here to tell you stuff. So I find it useful for me to map my research onto this curve to show what I am doing. So the stuff on counting words, the early majority can do that. There are freely available tools online which will allow you to count words in a text and manipulate them and draw those kind of graphs. But making an iPhone app to do that, you have to have the technical chops to program that up yourself. So that's an innovation stuff. We had to do a little back-end work to allow that to happen. The image processing stuff I do with colleagues is either innovation I'm very proud to say that I have been published in pure computing science journals, or is early adoption where my colleagues have adopted and innovated something themselves, which we then adopt to apply to a heritage context. But it's very firmly at the start of that curve. The user study stuff is slightly different. What we're looking at there is how the majority of people use, te use technologies, so we can feed back then on ramifications for the rest of the sector. And things like Transcribe Benthmore Curator, we're doing the whole curve. We're building it, we're launching it, we're trying to get the majority of people to use it, and then we're studying it, and we're publishing a reception study on it. I find this helps me conceptualise what I'm doing, because actually this is where I'm hanging out before technologies cross the chasm. I'm looking at technologies as they fly by, because this changes all the time, what's on this graph, and therefore I can actually um, spot opportunities for us to use within the arts and humanities. But I want to introduce another curve to you. This is a curve which is often used for the fact that technologies can be very, very overhyped when they're first launched, and then they don't live up to the hype. It's, used, it's produced by a company called Gartner, and it's used for people investing in technologies. And every year, they plot on this where technologies are on the Gartner hype cycle. So we have the peak of inflated expectations, and then when people realize that this technology isn't the best thing since sliced bread, it goes into the trough of disillusionment, and it takes a huge time till things get to the plateau of productivity where they become investable or usable in. And every year they do plot technologies on this to show you what is worth investing in or what bubble might burst soon. And right at the top here, you can see that big data is right at the top. It's right at the top of the hype cycle. Everything's about big data, big data, big data, big data. Fair enough. But you just have to watch because after this comes a crash. Right down at the bottom is virtual reality. You know, it's been down there for about 15 years. It's never quite getting up there. So this could be a useful way of thinking about technologies. And if I had to put the discipline of digital humanity somewhere on this, I'd put it right now at the peak of inflated expectations. Not necessarily from us scholars working in the field, but from those around us who are looking at the investment that the field has had, who are expecting us to bring in the multi-million pound grants, who are expecting us to change the whole of humanities, when that's not what we said that we were do. We're part of a trajectory, we're part of a history, we're part of a societal response and we have to be here. But that doesn't mean to say we thought we would change the whole of the humanities and that is not what we want to do. We want to work with humanists to, to do useful things. 
So how do we stop DH languishing in the trough of disillusionment? How do we get it to the plateau of productivity when the bubble will burst of these founding of all these centres? Well, it's going to be very Calvinist of me to say this, but do good work. We have to do good work. We have to understand that we are part of a trajectory, part of historical trajectory. We are part of the history of using quantifiable methods in the humanities, but we have to understand our methods. We're part of the history of using computing, but we have to understand our methods. We have to understand our methods, describe them, and show the benefits of digital humanities so that we can make sure that this discipline is still here for another 10 years. And when I look back across the range of projects which I've done here at UCL, which you know, covered a lot of different humanities subjects, I do see, firstly, I see that I am always at the start of that innovation curve, but I see major opportunities which we can do, go on to do further things here. We can do further things in the humanities, but we have to describe all, every single time, what our methods are, what our histories are, where we've come from, where we're going. We have to see that we're part of a longer thing. We're not just this flash in the pan change that's happened in the past 10 years. I'm immensely proud of a lot of the digital projects that I've done at UCL, but I'm also immensely proud of some of the infrastructural stuff I've, I've done. For example, we recently built a multimodal digitisation suite, which is split between the arts faculty, the engineering faculty and the library, and it's a shared space for us to do research, as well as to teach, and I haven't really talked much about teaching here today, but teaching digital humanities is a, a major part of, of this trajectory as well, to teach people the methods which are useful. So this is where I come back to the third thing, the third reason for calling my lecture a decade in digital humanities. I didn't see which decade I was talking about. So we've looked back for the past 10 years, now it's time to look forward. And I am not one for crystal ball, so I'll keep my scrying brief. What happens to waves? Waves tend to dissipate, and that's okay. So we've had a big swell of digital humanities, and I see it breaking and fragmenting into different subject areas, but that's okay. And the technologies which we use, we pick up, we develop, will go back and they will have ripple effects throughout the humanities subjects that they're investigating, but that's okay. It's okay for this swell to calm down and for us all to look at how the technologies move throughout society and throughout academia. I also see that this is my place right at the start of the innovation curve. Now, this isn't where all digital humanities people sit, and that's okay. But for me, I see that watching technology as it changes, keeping an eye out, keeping close relationships with computing science, engineering, and adopting technologies that come along as we can to heritage, to culture, there's always going to be a place for people that can do that, who, for people who can understand that's an opportunity there for us to take that technology and to try it and to test it and to see what happens and to see if there's use and to see if there's benefits within the humanities, within culture and heritage. And ideally, if it tells us something about heritage and culture and humanities that we didn't know before. But we have to be out there developing pilot projects. We have to be looking at the change of technology, not just XML, but the change of technology as technology rolls through and pouncing on any opportunities which come through. A concrete example of this for me is over the next eight years, I'm one of the co-investigators of the Centre for Doctoral Training in Science and Engineering in the Arts, Heritage and Archaeology at UCL. This is the biggest ever investment of the Engineering and Physical Science Research Council into heritage and culture, £8 million over eight years. And we will be training the next generation of heritage scientists into using both digital and physical sciences in heritage and culture. And I am immensely pleased to be part of that movement. It might be that what I'm talking about really is heritage science, that some of the stuff I do. 
It's another different word, another different term. That term only got born a couple of years ago, and we can now see that swelling through the university sector as people start to use science more in heritage. But I also see within digital humanities that we have to prove our worth a little bit more. We have to persuade and we have to say what the investment has been. We have to encourage people that use digitised versions of text and digital versions of, of uh, any historical artefact to mention that they use the digital one, not just to always cite the, the original one. We have to encourage people to talk about the technologies they use when they're doing basic humanities research and, uh, and answering basic humanities questions. People tend to hide the digital. They tend to not talk about it as if it's just a tool set, forgetting that we're along a trajectory developing this stuff as best we can for the humanities. So it's the role of us as digital humanists to be a little bit more upfront and to explain A, what we do, B, why we're doing it, C, what the results are for many people working in the humanities and heritage. And as technology changes, our discipline reflects that. There's going to be a new companion to digital humanities coming out this year, 10 years before, since the last one. I'm very pleased to say that I have a chapter in that one. I didn't have a chapter in the first one. Why would I? I was just finishing my PhD when it was put together. But I have a chapter in the new companion to digital humanities about the public engagement work that we've been doing in UCL, about Curator, about Transcribe Bentham, and the type of work we do reaching out to a broader audience, trying to get them to use technology and culture and heritage. So that is pretty much what I have to say about digital humanities to you tonight. Um, however, if you will entertain me just for one second, it is my inaugural <laughs> and I will cry if I want to. So I have a few thank yous to make along the way. Firstly to my family, some of whom are here tonight, some of whom are watching up in Scotland. Hi. Um, thanks very much for all your support. And I should say, you know, I went from probationary lecturer to full professor in 10 years. That's like, quite some lick. So I have had a lot of support behind me. Biggest support of the night, though, has to be my husband, Oz. Many people here know I have three small children of my own. So I have to thank my husband very much for all his help. There's proof in our house that you actually had to juggle children. You actually had to juggle them. I have been blessed with many friends who have been so, so supportive. Many of you are here tonight. Thank you so much. My first supervisor, Seamus Ross, uh, he's up the back, I think. Um, he got me started on this. He um, spotted me in the crowd of undergraduates and, and you know, encouraged me. He was my supervisor for my master's and for my MSc. And uh, yeah, thank you, Seamus, for everything. My supervisor for my PhD, Alan Bowman, again, remains a mentor. And thank you, Alan, for everything you've done. Susan Hockey gave me a job. She gave me a job. But also, she has been a, a hard act to follow because what she did at the time, looking at computers and seeing what was possible and trying to break expectations and trying to push it forwards as a woman in technology at that time, was just amazing. So she remains someone that I look up to immensely. But all of this stuff is not just about me. All of the work in UCLDH, there's a huge team of people there, and I do work with an amazing team of people at UCLDH, so I have to thank them for their input, both into the projects that we do and into my career trajectory. Special thanks go to Rudolf Allen, who helped with the little red boat that you may have seen sneaking its way through my slides. He's the designer at large at UCLDH, so he helped me with the slides for this inaugural. But it's not just UCL. DH, sorry, it's not just UCL DH. In this week of the Festival of the Arts and Humanities at UCL, 
I want just to tell you how embedded DH is in not just in the arts faculty here, but across the college. We are dependent on working with people in CASA over the Bar Bartlett Faculty of the Built Environment. We work with three different departments in the Faculty of Engineering, with computer science, with medical physics, and with civil and environmental and geomatic engineering. We are also really dependent on our colleagues in UCL Library and the collections in UCL Library to use within our research. And the same in UCL Museums, both the colleagues and the collections mean that we have a sandpit here which we can play in DH. So my final thanks go to UCL, because without being at UCL, my decade in digital humanities would have been completely different. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Melissa. It's not often that you come to a lecture and find suddenly that you can use skills that you learned 50 years ago uh, that you've never previously had the opportunity to use. Let me explain. In 1963, I think it was, Isaac Asimov said, because computers are going to be very important, all children should learn how to do arithmetic in binary numbers. And my South London Grammar School, being a very progressive grammar school, thought the new intake in 1965 should be taught binary arithmetic. And that was the first thing that we were taught, so we were ready for the computer age. Um, I've never had any occasion to use it <laughs> since 1965 until I found I could read some of Melissa's slides. So thank you for that, Melissa. That was a real treat uh, in, in that respect. But it's an enormous honour and pleasure for me to be the first to congratulate Melissa on her splendid lecture, uh, really a primer um, of how to think about and approach uh, the digital humanities, and to convey to Melissa the very best wishes and warmest felicitations of the wider digital humanities community on her well-deserved elevation to a professorial chair. Before I came to King's, um, I was previously at the University of Glasgow, which, as we've heard, was Mel's alma mater. And when I started there in 2010, I hadn't been closely involved with digital humanities for a few years. And I thought, digital humanities, exciting things would have happened. I wanted to see how things had developed. In some ways, what I found was disappointing. There were far too many people, the same people, saying the same things as they'd been saying 15 years previously. But there were other developments which were much more exciting. And among these was the use of social media. And I quickly realized that key resources for understanding current trends in digital humanities were Melissa's Twitter feed and blog. <laughs> It was very striking to me how the debates about the role of computational methods in the humanities were being taken forward through such social media. And it was immediately clear that Melissa was quite simply the most prominent UK participant in these debates in a sort of small stellar collection of a dozen people internationally who were taking this forward. Uh, Melissa was clearly the most prominent UK participant. 
My admiration for Melissa's leadership in this field was further increased by her remarkable plenary lecture at the 2010 DH conference, even more remarkable because delivered, as she said, while heavily pregnant. Um, With twins. Which, yeah, With twins. which was one of the most exciting events of DH in Britain in recent years. Mel's advocacy of digital humanities, which we felt the force this evening, is of course rooted in innovative research at the highest standard. In particular, her work on imaging to explore a range of difficult textual objects, including papyri on the one hand, or the great parchment book of Derry on the other. Mel is one of a remarkable cohort of digital humanities specialists who've begun their career at the University of Glasgow. And I think there can be no greater tribute to the work at Glasgow of Professor Seamus Ross, who we heard is here tonight, than the way at a very early stage in his career in academic teaching, he helped to set Mel on such a successful uh, path uh, when he supervised her master's dissertation. Likewise, Mel's profound technical understanding uh, was due to her wonderful doctoral training at the University of Oxford, which of course has been, like Glasgow, another outstanding centre of the digital humanities for very many years. It was the institutional infrastructure established by pioneers like Seamus Ross and Alan Bowman and Susan Hockey, which has enabled younger scholars like Mel to flourish. And it's now an enormous pleasure for those of us connected with older digital humanities centres at places like Sheffield, Glasgow, Oxford and of course King's to see this new chair established in UCL and to see a splendid digital humanities centre created here. Of course, for those of us uh, like Seamus and myself who were involved in the heady days of the first wave of humanities computing, in some ways it was much easier. When most humanities academics hadn't even seen the World Wide Web before, it was easier to astonish them and of course much easier to uh, do something innovative and get the funding for it. However, in our first wave of digital humanities, I'm not sure we always got it right. In particular, we haven't always built up the best career structures for younger colleagues. Too often, talented digital humanities practitioners are left in an awkward void between the academy and professional services in a no-man's land of short-term contracts with no clear way forward. That's why it's a particular and very important pleasure uh, that, uh, uh, to note that Mel has so clearly demonstrated what a successful career, academic career path in the digital humanities should look like. A lot of the reason why Mel's been able to take forward her academic career so successfully is that she's worked in the settled framework of the oldest Department of Information Studies in the country and the way in which DH should fit into these existing administrative and uh, 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 intellectual infrastructures is worth further reflection. Well, that next generation of digital humanists will have a difficult task 
because it probably won't have quite so much pioneering fun, although, as Mel has indicated, I hope it will still have some by pursuing innovation and avoiding the chasm. But uh, that generation will instead need to provide wise and mature leadership as we are trying to establish the digital humanities in a stable way within the academy. In her lecture tonight, I think Mel's shown how she's got the capacity to provide such leadership for the field, and I hope she will go on uh, as her professorship develops to do so. Digital humanists have always been good at building bridges, and that will continue to be the key to success in the future. We'll need to build bridges um, within the schools and departments where digital humanities takes place, and it will be vital to ensure that we connect with our closest colleagues. As digital methods become more mainstream, we will see new centres of excellence emerging in many universities, uh, which will provide us older centres with stiff competition. And it will be up to us in the older centres, such as Glasgow, UCL and King's, to build connections with these new areas of activity and to warmly and supportively welcome the new academic faces who will enter our field. We've been talking for many years about the moment when digital methods start to be adopted on a large scale by humanities researchers. That is now at last starting to happen, and it will be Melissa and her generation who will have the job of integrating digital humanities into that new wave of study. This is a huge and daunting task because we'll be confronted by a wave of enthusiastic and high-achieving young scholars with no knowledge of our early traditions and achievements, to whom BUSA is a closed book and TEI baffling. To ensure that digital humanities, as it has developed to date, continues to play an active part in the digital academy will require special skills involving tact, diplomacy, liberality of outlook, strong personal empathy, intellectual enthusiasm and energy. It will need bridge building on a vast scale and that's what we look for from the next generation of DH pioneers. And I hope that Mel will use her time as Professor of Digital Humanities, uh, which has been so successfully inaugurated here, to pursue a leadership agenda of this kind. I'm delighted to see younger scholars like Mel stepping up to the plate to provide the next generation of leaders in DH. I must admit that while my enthusiasm for digital humanities is undiminished, I'm beginning to run out of puff. I just wondered whether I'd been chosen because of the uh, uh, motto here, actually. Um, um, I certainly am delighted to see the younger generation uh, taking up the baton of leadership. My inaugural message to Mel is that she should make sure during the next 10 years that digital humanities is led wisely and well. So many thanks again and congratulations to Mel for an enthralling and thought-provoking overview of 10 years of digital humanities. And I'd ask you to join me in thanking her again, Mel.